please remain standing for the reading of God's word. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 through 19. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's okay. We have some extra copies there in the seat in front of you. This is the parable of the tenants, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 through 30. Uh, but for this beginning portion, I'll only read from verse 14 through 19 and continue the rest of the passage later in the sermon. Hear now God's word. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this will be our last one-off sermon uh, before going into our fall series, a new series starting next week. Hope you can return then. But as our fall ministry is kicking off this week, so excited about that, and heading into our ministry fair next Sunday after service, if you missed that morning announcement, please do stick around after service next Sunday around 12 to about 1245. There'll be live music. There'll be all our ministries of the church setting up uh, uh, their displays and, and answering any questions you might have to get involved. I'm just so excited about there's going to be things for children also. Well, I thought this parable going into that would be a helpful way to wrap our hearts and minds again, and, and I need this for myself, mind you, to wrap our hearts and minds again on why we're here, why we come and worship and sing and hear God's word preach, to wrap our hearts and minds again on kingdom work, or we can say kingdom investment. Mind you, not as a guilt trip to just get busier at church, Hey, brother, I've been noticing you don't do much, so just listen to this parable and just get going. But to remember again why we serve the king and what ways we are indeed called to serve the king, as was a theme here in our liturgy this morning. Now, before I get into principles and application of this parable, let me make some remarks on its context and the meaning of some of its terms. Some of you guys grew up in church. Some of you guys, this maybe the first year going to church or maybe even the first Sunday. And so I think some terms need to be explained. Well, this is, in the history of the church, a very well-known parable, the parable of the talents. Some here have probably heard multiple sermons on this passage, but hopefully, and, and, I, and I, this, this is my experience too, whenever someone that I'm listening to, maybe my favorite preacher, if they're preaching from a text that I just know by heart, there's always something new, something weighty uh, to pick up. But for some of you, this is your first time hearing this passage preached, and we are certainly glad that you're with us here today, and we're going to hopefully take our time to explain all that it means for us. But first of all, this is the way Jesus teaches. You might have heard just through just people talking about religion that Jesus taught through parables, stories. This is probably not a real-life event but he uses images and certain understandable themes to get his point across to people that were gathering and clamoring to hear his teachings 2,000 years ago. Usually it's said in a way that is mysterious or has a 
hidden meaning, meaning parables, as Jesus explains elsewhere, are meant to soften hearts to the good news of who he is, but also continue to harden hearts to those that refuse to believe. But for these set of parables and all of actually chapter 25, Jesus is talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God and what it's like and what is expected of us as we wait for him to return and what our attitude and action should resemble in regards to kingdom, yes, kingdom work. And so let's go over some of these terms. You might have heard the passage preached taking the word talents literally as in invest in your God-given natural talents, your singing, your physical strength, your intellect, and, and so on, but, but really just kind of in the way that we describe talents uh, today, America's Got Talent, etc. Although it's understandable why someone might take it that way, it's very much kind of not exactly what this means. Talents, actually, 2,000 years ago, comes from the Greek word for a measure of weight. It actually, 2,000 years ago, had nothing to do with your natural abilities, but we're going to kind of nuance that and get into that in a minute, but it was really about money. It was a monetary standard known to them 2,000 years ago. And so when we read talents, at least in this parable, in this setting, think of a weight of money. I heard a bag of gold or a bag of silver. Uh, if you guys want to donate to me, that'd be great. It's pretty much close to depicting how much a quote-unquote talent was worth back then. Some even say a talent of gold or silver was worth around 38 years of labor. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps millions of dollars in today's currency. More on that later. But if you look at your Bibles again and just read, and I'm going to read it again, verse 14 through 19. Let's just scan this over again. It was common in those times that a rich master would be gone for long periods of time. And if the master was indeed rich enough... He'd have servants, bond servants, interchangeable descriptions, slaves that he owned, and he would entrust them at times with bigger tasks. Jesus here is likening this man in the parable to himself. And I think you get it by now that if Jesus is then the master, then these servants are representative of us. And this is when Christ returns to settle accounts, so to say, every individual's time of reckoning before the Lord. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit. It seems like this is in the context of not oh, those that go to church every Sunday versus those that never darken the door of a church or ever want to do anything spiritual. But I think this is to all people who consider themselves religious, especially even in now, 2,000 years later, in the quote-unquote cultural church setting. I think this is a word to those kind of people. And so if you glance over to the first servant, he gave five talents. That's a huge amount. Remember, almost five times an average lifetime salary. To another, he gave two talents. And finally, to the last one, he gave one talent. J.C. Ryle, I really want to uh, recommend him, uh, was a great author and preacher in the 1800s in northern England. I like what he wrote about what these measures of money represented, though. They, they were literally bags of money, but he kind of expounds on that, explains a little bit more about what this rep represents. He said, talents in this context of the parable is anything whereby we may glorify God. That's a talent. Obviously, Jesus is not saying, get your bags of gold ready for the kingdom. Although money is part of what God has given us to glorify him, it is only one sliver of what we offer 
up to, to the Lord. So J.C. Ryle, anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. He goes on and says, our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections even, our privileges as members of Christ's church. That's part of being, having a talent. He, and then he says, our advantages as possessors of the Bible. All, all our talents. And he says, why did this come about? And from where or from whom? And he says, there's only one answer to these questions. All that we have is a loan from God. We are God's stewards. We are God's debtors. He said, let this thought sink deeply into our hearts. You will miss the entire parable if we do not let that sink deeply into our hearts. That God owns all these things. All the gifts that he gives to people are from him. We are debtors. We are only stewards. So if you're tracking along here, Jesus is deliberately giving resources, spiritual gifts to his people to use, not only for their own good, but for the good of their master, to invest it. And Jesus is clearly saying this type of investment should be typical and expected of every true believer as we wait the return of the Lord. Chapter 24, chapter 25, how to prepare, how to prepare. Jesus will come, Jesus will come again, Jesus will come again. And not just for certain people, but everyone in the church. But why some get five, some two, some just one? Is it from merit? Did these people just earn this favor from God? John Calvin, some of you guys know, the great reformer in the 16th century from Geneva, Switzerland, adamantly says that is entirely not the case. This is not merit-based. This is simply God's will to do as he pleases. And when speaking of spiritual gifts, the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills, as God wills. That's why there's a five, two, or one. It's for his own pleasure. So this master in this parable gives the talents and the leaves as he has entrusted these people as custodians, as stewards again of these resources. Look at your Bible, Matthew 25. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. That's where we left off in the reading. Jesus is saying it might be a long time. Nobody knows the day or hour. For you, in our in a contemporary context, there is no need to try to figure it out. Jesus says it will be a long time. Nobody knows the hour or day, but he will return someday. And settle accounts, as we see in verse 19. And now we come to the example of these two bondservants then. And what do they do in verse 20 through 23, if you look at your Bibles? Now, if you'll note well, there's a progressing principle that comes from the first two servants' example, repeated in three phases, uh, phrases that I'm going to go through after I read this. See if you, but see if you can catch it, what these three phrases are that are repeated, this progressing of phrases as I read verse 20 through 23. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also... 
And he who also had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. If you have a pen, if you have a pencil, you probably can just even note what these uh, repeated phrases are. And so there are three of them regarding to these first two servants. The first is investment and faithfulness. The second, and I'll repeat these, hearing the pleased acknowledgement of God. And finally, number three, the third repeated phrase is the reward and sharing in the master's happiness or joy. And again, this progression is repeated for both. And we're going to tackle each phrase quickly before we get to the final and third servant. But number one, investment and faithfulness. Invest and be faithful, not invest and be successful. I had to learn that many years ago coming into ministry where it was all about ministry success, ministry success, how many people you get through the doors, uh, how many people just love your sermons or, or, or love meeting up with you or, or just building up a, a wonderful team and staff. It's all about success. It's all about numbers. It's all about tithing, et cetera, et cetera. And then I started to learn, especially through church planting in Chicago for uh, uh, you know, seven to nine years being in Chicago, that is, it was a very barren and hard place to do ministry. And I started to think, and my mentors were telling me, Robin, you're not a failure. Our, our church plant closed in 2019, but you do feel like a failure. We're, we're always about, especially in our context, especially from what, how I was raised in the church, oh, invest just 24-7, burn out, and you better be successful. This is not the point of the parable. This is investment and faithfulness, not investment and what we deem as success. This is the first principle that we can learn from our Lord Savior. If Jesus truly is your new Lord, your Savior, your new master, and if you realize what Jesus has set you actually free from, you'll want to serve wholeheartedly with your whole life to your new master, invest in his work, and seek to live that out faithfully. That's a natural, organic progression. It doesn't happen overnight, but there is a progression. This is why the word translated for servant is more accurately slave or bondservant in the original Greek. Because these characters are now owned by the new master. They owe their whole life to their new master. And the master is generous in allowing them to even participate in the master's business. And so, of course, back in Jesus' time, 2,000 years ago, the slave imagery was well understood. People welcomed even being a slave to a master to a household because it meant they could survive 2,000 years ago. It meant they can actually have a fulfilling life instead of being on the streets and so on or even in jail because of their growing debt. It's not the same as our horrid history in America with slavery. There was a stark difference. But the slaves back then had responsibilities according to their capabilities. And so as we'll see in this parable, it wasn't out of the ordinary. The slaves were entrusted with millions of dollars from their masters. In relation to Christ, doesn't the Bible then say also we are now his holy? Doesn't scripture say in the context of sexual purity, 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. Verse 20, for you were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. We belong to Christ now fully, even our bodies. 
because we were bought at a price by his precious blood. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, that we are no longer slaves of sin, but verse 18, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Slaves to sin no more, but now slaves of righteousness and obedience of Christ. That's actually our new identity. Romans 6.22 then says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We, brothers and sisters, we graciously belong to our new master, Christ, and we owe our whole lives to him. And so don't misunderstand. We're not trying to repay what God has done for us. That's impossible. But we relish in the fact, this truth, we celebrate this truth that we are under now the rule of the one true king, We don't serve two masters, as Jesus said, but to the one true king, the savior, Messiah, and who would want to be ruled by anyone else? Now, at the very beginning, you might say, oh, this is is tough. Maybe even 10 years in, 20 years in, you have moments of weakness where you want to kind of serve a different master. Perhaps for some of us, it's every week, it's every day we're confronted with this. But deep down, the spirit convinces us, would you want to be ruled, Robin, by anyone else? And the Spirit inspires us and convicts us to say, no, never, O Lord. And so there's a deep privilege of the bondservant. Once they realize what was paid for them, and they would then want to serve out of sheer joy and gratitude. There's a movie, I might have said this before, in an illustration called The Eagle. Uh, You don't have to watch it. Uh, It was a long time ago. But anyway, in the Roman Empire uh, era, and again, I watch any period piece movies, the slave system was prominent, and there was this one kind of retired junior general or lieutenant or something, and he gets wounded in battle, very courageous, and he, he can't fight anymore, so he's uh, honorably discharged, and he's set to retire even though he's still a young man. And he goes with his uncle to a sports arena where these people are fighting for, their, for sport. This is sadly uh, what was uh, common back then. And he's seeing this slave who's trying to fight this guy three times as big big as him. And I think he wins, but then the crowd is like, well, the slave should die too. And this retired officer stands up and says, spare him, right? And everyone's like, boo, boo, but he's like, spare him. So he's walking away with his uncle from the arena and this slave chases after him. And he says, my life is yours now. Wherever you go, whatever you do, I'm gonna follow you. And he's like, thank you, but, but it's all good. You know, go get some food, see you later. But he keeps following him all the way back to his villa, all the way back to his home. And he says, he keeps repeating this phrase, you know, wherever you go or whatever you do, I'm going to be beside you. He said, Not, you know, my life is yours, essentially. But this retired officer knows, okay, well, you know, my, his father was, was a prominent general in the Roman Empire, vanished like 15 years ago or something. So he goes on this quest to go find him. And the slave still says, wherever you go. I I know if you're going to try to find this and go into foreign territories, you're probably going to be hurt. You might even get killed. I might get killed. But again, my whole life is yours. And so they go on that journey and then watch it later. Now, all this to say, Jesus' expectation of us is that we are now his. We were bought at a price. We should be willing, grateful servants. We were saved from something. We were meant for death and eternal damnation. And Christ 
yanked us out by the grace and intervention of him and him alone. Bond servants to now our creator and Lord, willing to invest in kingdom work wherever you go, Lord, wherever you lead, I will go. But this is not for our kingdoms, lowercase kingdoms here on earth. However small or big, invest in his kingdom work, and this is a natural organic outflow of those that belong to the gracious Lord. And if this clicks with you right now, however young or old you are, however many years you spent in church, or if this is your first time, you'll notice that your service to Christ, it changes. I think if we, if we just form a line here and just give testimonies of how Christ has changed your attitude and your view of life and the possession of your own self to willingly say, this is, this is all yours, Lord. Everything I own, everything I am, whatever I do, this is yours. We would have a whole long line. It would take hours here saying, this is my testimony of my attitude changed about serving Christ and his church. My view of money has changed. Your view of all things, as, as J.C. Ryle mentioned earlier, talents representing in spiritual currency, our gifts, our influence, our money, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections even, our advantages as people who have the gospel, who have the whole Bible. Think of it this way. If I went into ministry thinking, God really needs me. I really need, he really needs my help. I guess I can do my part, man. It's, it's just going to be so hard, but I guess I could try it out. I wonder how long I'll have to do this. And man, if I don't do this, God will just be angry with me. So I guess I'll just have to perform. As a former church member said, fake it till I make it. How long do you think I'll last before utterly being burnt out? Because actually, God has no needs at all. Sure, our Lord graciously enjoys using empty vessels such as us for his purposes, his will, even his joy. But really, he has no needs. There's a fancy theological word for this to describe God, and that's God's aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Some of you guys know the term. It's okay if you don't. But this is God's aseity, meaning he has actually no needs. He is self sufficient. He is the Alpha and Omega. He has no needs. He doesn't actually need servants to do his bidding, but yet he finds joy in doing so. And so what if I had the perspective of one of these first two servants that invested and were faithful with what was entrusted to them, what they were stewarding? What if I go into ministry thinking, and this could be any of you guys in your situation right now in serving the church and the Lord, if you looked and just went into just doing the work of the Lord, serving Christ and his church, God, I owe my whole life to you because you set me free from darkness and my old slave master's sin. You're the new master. This is not a humble brag, but in the darker moments of church planting where sometimes 12 people would come for a Sunday service, sometimes I would preach almost in a near empty room yeah, it was a little bit discouraging, but also deep down, though, there was a sense of, I, I go where you lead me, Lord. Wherever you want me, whatever you want me to do, I don't, I, I'm not called to serve you based on future success, quote unquote. But whatever you want, whatever your will is, I want to follow. And to participate in any way to your service in your kingdom, 
Oh God, that's a privilege to me. Oh, I think about the missionaries across the world. We don't even know half of it. We probably know 2% of what they actually go through, the ups, but then the very low lows. And yet I'll go serve willingly, knowing, God, that you don't really need me, but knowing that it pleases you to use me. Oh, God, thank you for entrusting me with this small but worthy work. And may you grant me the strength to be faithful and invest well in what you've given me. I know I won't be perfect, but I want to do all of this with gratitude and joy. Imagine if you, imagine if I thought this way, prayed this way every day. Instead of, oh, God's going to be upset with me, my peers at church will look down on me, or, oh, I just... I guess I just need to fill my quota for the week to make myself feel a little bit more godly, a little bit more worth something. What a massive prayer difference. These servants were simply glad to be entrusted as stewards. They desired to be faithful to their master and invest on his behalf. They didn't mind the risk because this is the Lord's anyway. They felt entrusted and liberated to give and serve and invest. Now to the second phrase, hear the pleased acknowledgement of God. Hear the pleased acknowledgement of God. When the master hears that both servants invested and gained 100% in return, the master says to both, verse 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Or another translation, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. To hear these words from our master is the greatest motivation to serve him well on earth. Because if you're following the parable, this is what Christ accounts for after he returns. This is the picture of, of, of life on earth. What will Jesus say to you after life on earth comes to an end? Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, we all realize there was only one person, though, before you start kind of getting into a romantic imagery of just the heavens opening and the, the sunlight just beaming on you, and here comes Robin Cho. <laughs> well done, good and faithful servant. All right, so kind of move away from that imagination. We all realize, if we're honest with ourselves, there's only one, there's only one person who walked on this earth that could truly received such affirmation and acknowledgement. There was only one person who was truly the quote-unquote good and faithful servant, and that person was Christ alone. So how in the world could we ever hear those words uttered over us, this pleased acknowledgement of our God? Well, it's because, and we will always go back to this at Westminster, it's because we are in Christ Jesus. We sang about it earlier today. This is why Galatians 2.20 is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, when we truly believe in Christ, we are then united to him, not temporarily, not for a season, but forever. And after conversion, after our hearts are regenerated, every single thing that is done for the Lord and his kingdom is actually done in union to the Son. There is no other way without it, this truth. So when believers hear that well done, good and faithful servant someday, Lord willing, this will only be plausible, possible, 
because the Father sees our union with his Son, who was perfectly faithful, good, and actually the true servant. And when you truly believe, when you realize that all our efforts under the Son, Book of Ecclesiastes, our labors, our work, our leisure, uh, all those things can't be taken into eternity. But when we spend our talents for Christ in our lives here on earth, that lasts forever. That lasts forever. You are investing in eternal things. That's the, one of the most motivating factors when I do daily, weekly tasks here at the church or ministry, inside of the church or outside of the church. If I know that it has some type of eternal implication, I just feel this rush this fuel, this empowerment, and this strength to keep going forward. Oh, that five-minute call to a hurting brother or sister. That providing of food to those down and out, even homeless. That long email in helping someone learn about the gospel and the faith. When you do these things, oh, that lasts forever. That encouraging visit to someone recovering in the hospital. Many of you guys do that. That loving admonition to the prodigal running away from the Lord. That moment of forgiveness to that undeserving, hurtful friend. That 30 minutes of prayer with others of the church where it was difficult to think, that had, did this really have an impact, but yet you still believed it would. That sharing of the Bible passages that was needed in just the right time for a struggling friend. That strategic and intentional care for your unchurched friend who desperately needed to hear of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, spend, 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 brothers and sisters. Invest, invest, invest in eternal things and not for the crumbling, frail, paper house kingdoms we seek to serve. And I won't do this now, but I could spend hours here on this stage after spending some two years now here with you all at Westminster sharing of all the eternal things I've seen all you here commit to with such devotion and godly affection. I'm not making this up, and godly care. Your sacrificial love, your giving of yourselves in care for one another, your prayers, your devotion to his word, your tireless service to the church. May God be glorified through you as Christ is in you. And I, I wrote here a note. I just said, thank you, church, for encouraging me. Brothers and sisters, let's care deeply about our master's business and keep that in the forefront of our minds. And now to the third phrase or point, share in the master's happiness. You could say share in the master's joy. Verse 23, again, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master or come and share your master's happiness. That's what we all considered eternal bliss. When we invest in the kingdom, he knows that we'll share in the purest form of happiness, the master's happiness, and not just for a little while, but for all of eternity. If you could just imagine and picture that, this is the picture of the banqueting table at the end and the feast, that banqueting feast when Christ returns forever at his table. Isn't that picture of what will come worth all that we live for him in this lifetime? Now that this life, not that this life would be easy when we carry the cross, when we deny ourselves and we follow him, but I, I, again, I love what J.C. Ryle wrote about this. He said, quote, the cross may be heavy now, the cross may be heavy now, but the glorious reward will make up for all. And what really is that reward? 
Oh, so many people interpret it in different ways on what things will be like in the new heaven and new earth or how rewards will play out. But listen to what Paul, the Apostle Paul, says nearing the end of his life and ministry in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's saying this is not just for him, but a promise for all believers. Our sharing in the joy of the Lord is made entirely possible because we will be completely conformed to the image of the Son when we are with him in all of his righteousness. This is the picture of the crown of righteousness here, which is really Christ himself, the hope of glory. This is what we look forward to. Meaning Christ is the greatest treasure we could ever look forward to for all of eternity. That righteousness of Christ, that in fancy theological terms was imputed to us at conversion or credited to our spiritual bank accounts, will be experienced in complete perfection when we see him. There will be no more sin. There will be no more rebellion, no more shame, no more falling short, only the perfect righteousness of Christ. And can you even try to imagine desiring a reward greater than simply Christ himself? That's great, God, but where, where is the main buffet? Where is the main thing that I've been waiting for? No, when you encounter Christ for all eternity, there is no need for anything else. This is the epitome of entering into the joy of our master. And this is reward is spoken here as a promise granted to these first two servants that applies to those who believe. Now it would just be a, let's go have fellowship and just, uh, join you know, each other's company afterwards. This is all great and whoo, you know, forever eternity with Christ's presence. But there is this conclusion to the parable. There is this warning at the end. Let me just finish by reading 24 to 30. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken for him. I think this third person is likened to someone who is religious. Someone who has religion in his or her background. Visited the temple and so forth some 2,000 years ago. And perhaps Jesus had the Pharisees in mind here but that they, were all, that they were all external showers, but not converted internally in the heart. There were many in Jesus' day. Same perhaps can be said to those that have access to the gospel, perhaps even go to church services in our day and age, most Sundays, but have no real care for eternal kingdom matters. Perhaps that's the parable. And there are many of those today in our culture. This is a judgment of one who does not really believe. Why is this the case? Not because he was a sinner, because we're all sinners. Not because he messed up several times in life, that's all of us. Not because he missed X amount of Sundays, but because as one pastor said, he did nothing. 
All he did was rest in his own laziness and in his own fear that the master might get upset at him, and that fear led him to do nothing. This is quite interesting, actually. Many scholars note that in Jesus' day, actually digging a hole and burying money was actually kind of a smart thing to do. It was a practical way to avoid thieves and other mischief, and it was rather safe overall. Very practical. You see, as Ecclesiastes taught us over the summer, life under the sun, meaning life in a fallen, sinful world, tells us constantly that living for this God is not worth doing. And actually doing what is smart in the world's eyes is not always the right thing, of course. And our excuse-making then against God and his character, like shown here in the third servant, will be many at the last day when Christ returns. Perhaps the excuses will be those who are religious. Well, you didn't bless me enough, God. Jesus comes and settles accounts. God, you didn't grant me enough opportunities. I would have invested more if I had more opportunities or more talents. If I only had that person's resources or giftings, I would have served you so much more. If I only wasn't so busy or had so many things to look after, perhaps I wouldn't have then dug a hole to dump the treasure of all treasures, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to have to cover all that up. Oh, Jesus, if, if, if the excuses on that day will be so high indeed. But when Christ returns to settle to judge, it will be too late. And so what a warning. And what is the end result and consequence of such an absence of faith in the Lord? Verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, this parable is not only about investment in God's kingdom and the pleasure that comes from doing so, but that Jesus is returning someday to settle accounts. And if you think you could trick God by sometimes appearing moral and using Christian lingo and phrases in our speech, much like the Pharisees, you probably knew more doctrine than the average religious person who, who probably knew more doctrine than the regular religious person in their day. But then in turn, you don't see any gospel fruit burst forth in your life. Then perhaps a scary judgment in, is coming your way. This is what Jesus is alluding to. You can most definitely fool me, you could fool your family, you could fool your friends, you could fool elders at the church, but nobody can fool God. And so a warning is only a warning if there's actually true danger. And Jesus was speak, speaking of a real, imminent danger. But isn't the warning for all of us here too? That we are all so desperately in need of God's saving intervention. That one theologian that said, if I could lose my salvation, which we don't believe you can, if you're genuinely converted, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. But he said, if I could actually do it, if I could actually lose my salvation, I would. 100% I would. Because that's how weak, that's how much like the third servant I am. But thanks be to God of a divine intervention. And so this warning is for all of us, and only by the grace of the Lord can we endure and see him face to face someday. But the warning is real. The weeping and gnashing of teeth reference here is equated to hell. John Calvin again, the reformer, noted that in their time, celebrations often happen at night where there was bright lights, lanterns lighting up inside, inside the home where there's warmth. Again, think of the banqueting scene with Christ at the end of time. But if you were kicked out of the house at night, the contrast was immediately felt. There was no transition. It was immediately cold. It was immediately darkness all around. 
you were immediately alone, hence the weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is hell, some people say, a place where there is no joy or happiness, no satisfaction in anything. Can you imagine a place like that, simply apart from the presence of God forever, where God is not restraining evil, and there is just not eternal bliss, but condemnation and despair forever. Brothers and sisters, on one hand, what a major encouragement this parable brings, and on the other, what an ominous warning of impending judgment to those that don't. And I'll conclude by saying this is not workspace salvation that we're talking about here. This is purely the principle that if you truly have faith in Christ to be your Savior and Lord, it will burst forth. Your life will resemble and reflect true gospel fruit. Perhaps you need a sermon like this to kind of shake off the dust and to get your heart and your affections going by the aid of the Spirit, but it will burst forth. And there's no way that we can just bury the gospel in our lives like the third servant out of some notion of fear of what God would do. And so, brothers and sisters, may God grant us sober minds to consider his truth, his word, his encouragement, but also his warning. And remember from last week in Psalm 119, because of the gospel, he has liberated, he has set the heart free. What To do what? To serve, to love him to love his church, to use all the quote-unquote talents bestowed upon you for his glory and renown and experience the foretaste of God's delight over you because of Christ, the Savior united to you. May that be the motivating factor. May it be no other reason that, oh, I want to serve the King. Let's bow our heads and pray. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you even if this is very known to many of us, that this comes to us as a fresh conviction, a fresh reminder, O oh Lord, to stand up, to walk, to run in the truths of you, God, to see where there are needs, to those who are hurting, to ways where we can volunteer to serve you and your church, not just inside of these walls, but most definitely outside of these walls, to be salt and light, to point people to the truth of you, Jesus Christ. But at the bottom of all this, O oh Lord, how amazing it is. Oh, how amazing is your grace that we are actually called to be your servants, that we are called as sons and daughters. Oh, that we would joyfully say, God, you own everything. Help us to joyfully serve you the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.